Hi, everybody. Uh, warm welcome to the LSE. Good to see you turning out in the midst of the exam season uh, in such good numbers. Uh, my name is Charlie Beckett. I'm the uh, director of something called Polis, which is the LSE's uh, journalism think tank. I'm also a professor in the Department of Media and Communications here at the LSE. I'm delighted to welcome Fareed Sakaria to the LSE today, um, partly because, like him, I used to be a TV journalist, and that's the only uh, resemblance that we have. Um, uh, Fareed is, of course, the host of uh, CNN's flagship foreign affairs uh, programme, Fareed Sakaria's GPS. It's always great to have your own to have a show named after yourself, I think. He's also, of course, a Washington Post columnist and a contributing editor uh, in many other places. Uh, tonight, he's slightly stepping away, if you like, from uh, the sort of global affairs beat to talk about uh, his new book called In Defence of a Liberal Education. Um, the book argues, basically, that that classic idea of uh, the liberal arts is not only a noble and uh, interesting educational pursuit, but is uh, uniquely and specially suited to uh, the both career and personal demands of modern life. I've got a lot of sympathy with that view. I think the people facing the challenge of the kind of new politics and new media also need to have a much more rounded and diverse uh, understanding of life. Um, for those of you who are um, uh, interested in new media and tweeting tonight, the, the hashtag is LSE Sicaria, and I really would encourage you, please, to tweet as much as you can because I'm desperate for a retweet from the latest American politician to join Twitter, who, of course, is Barack Obama. He's now on Twitter, so do your best to entice him. Um, usual stuff. Please uh, turn off your phones. Uh, afterwards... Um, there's going to be a, a brief uh, book signing, so if you can let, let him out to the back and he can quickly sign, sign some books. But I'd like you to warmly welcome our speaker tonight, please. Thank you. It's, a, it's an enormous pleasure to be here. It is, um, I don't know whether um, a homecoming would be the right word, but in 1944, my father, who was a poor kid from India, got a scholarship to come to the University of London. Um, in those days, if you, uh, if you stood first in your MA exams in Bombay, at the University of Bombay, um, you got a scholarship not to Oxford or Cambridge. That would have been too much. Um, to the University of London. And he came to the LSE and initially studied with uh, Harold Lasky, uh, who quickly explained to him that, uh, that he didn't really understand economics and he should go and get a PhD at SOAS, which is what he did. Uh, given Haralaski's effects on the Indian economy for the, for the succeeding five decades, I'm not sure whether, uh, whether he was right about that or not, but, uh, but my father had an incredibly uh, spirited, rich time at uh, the LSE at SOAS, and so I've always had a special fondness uh, for this place. Um, I thought what I'd do, I am in a sense straying from my, from my beat, but I'm going to talk about something that I think intersects with the kind of things that I spend most of my time thinking about. Um, because what I'm really asking is, 
What does it take to succeed and thrive in today's world? What does it take if you're a country, if you're an individual? Um, what are the, the skills that produce the kind of uh, innovation that people want in a, in, a, in a country, the kind of career that you want in an individual? Uh, and the reason I'm uh, interested in that is that there is now an almost settled consensus that of course the answer is you should all be spending your time coding. You should be studying computer science and uh, preferably you know, what you should do is actually drop out of college, uh, go and found a company. Uh, if you can't manage to do something that bold and exciting, you might as well study electrical engineering or something like that. And that is the settled consensus you know, everywhere. You listen to uh, the Cameron government and they talk about job training and skills-based learning. You listen to the Obama administration administration, they talk about the same thing. President Obama got into a little trouble. Uh, he, was, he was at a, an event uh, talking about job training and skills-based learning, and he said, uh, yeah, I've got to tell you folks, you're going to do much better in life if you do one of these kinds of uh, skills-based uh, educations than if you get a degree in art history. And of course, you can imagine what happened is every art historian in the United States <laughs> wrote angry letters to him, uh, and he, in fact, to his credit, uh, sent a, a very nice apology uh, note to one of them and, and released it to the public. Uh, by the way, I, I, I have never had... Um, something of mine retweeted by President Obama, but uh, we just started. But I did have the White House retweet something I did once, and, and uh, it caused some consternation. I wrote a column pointing out, I thought um, simply and accurately, that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had been wrong about the Iran threat for about the last 25 years. And this was just a factual point, that for the last 25 years he had said Iran was five years away, two years away, one year away from getting a nuclear bomb. And I was just pointing out that, you know, um, the evidence is that, you know, if you say 12 years ago Iran is one year away from a bomb, at some point somebody has to point out they didn't get the bomb. Um, <laughs> So the White House retweeted this, which caused, uh, of course, the, the prime minister's office to get, get furious, and he answered a question on national television saying, the White House shouldn't be retweeting Fareed Zakaria's columns, it should be retweeting Ayatollah Khamenei's, you know, the most recent uh, offer, you know, uh, threat to, uh, to eliminate Israel, um, which, of course, being a journalist, gave me an opportunity to write another column on the subject, <laughs> in which I pointed pointed out that Ayatollah Khomeini did not actually threaten to destroy Israel physically. He threatened to promote um, the idea of a referendum in Israel where all the people living in Israel, that is to say under the control of the, of the government of Israel, Israeli Jews, Israeli Arabs, and Palestinians would get to vote on the kind of government they have, um, which is a somewhat different argument than, uh, than to say that I'm planning to drop a nuclear bomb on Israel. Um, anyway, I, I digress just because, I, because of the, the, the tweet. Um, but what I thought I'd, I'd, I'd try to talk about is this, this question of how do, you, how do you guys get the kind of jobs and careers that are going to be fulfilling and, and successful in the future? And 
As I say, in the United States, we, we are now at the point where there are many Republican governors in states, in large states, that are threatening to actually shut down various departments of the humanities, social sciences. The governor of Florida recently said, you know, we don't need any more anthropologists in Florida, um, you know, to which anyone who's been to Florida would be, you need a lot of anthropologists to figure out, figure out exactly what makes Florida tick. But... Um, <laughs> But, but, but his general point was, of course, what we need are mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, uh, and scientists. Um, and, and this is routine now. There's a, a, a talk show host named William Bennett, uh, who was Secretary of Education under Ronald Reagan. And he was on with the governor of, I think it was Wisconsin. And, the, and uh, the, the, the Bennett says, what the hell do we need to subsidize more PhDs in philosophy for? Which was particularly uh, a, a kind of interesting because William Bennett is a PhD in philosophy from Williams College, who then went on to become a professor, then became the Secretary of Education, and now is a, is a talk show host, and he has his own for-profit online education company. In other words, in his case, a PhD in philosophy seems to have been a very nice path to multiple careers in government and nonprofits in business, and yet he was sure that this was a terrible training for everybody else. Um, and one of the things I've been trying to sort of figure out is why we, we, we think this way, because the odd thing is the, the distinctive contribution that the United States has provided to higher education has been this idea of a liberal education. Now, one has to make a, a, a qualifier. Whenever one says something that is distinctive about the United States, there is a tendency for Britain to be the originator of the idea in the first place. The way I put it is, in business terms, we, we took it to scale. You know, John Cardinal Newman might have talked about it at Oxford, but, but, but really what happened is, in the 19th century, when France, Germany, but even Britain to a, to a certain extent, were really focusing on the idea of skills-based learning. This was all the rage in the 19th century, and the idea was that when you're 15 or so, you stream into one of the trades, uh, and that was the way that you would, you know, you're, you're, you would be set for your life. Uh, the United States, and again, Britain to a certain extent, but Britain really for kind of upper-class kids only, uh, the United States said, no, we're going to provide a mass general education. Why? Because the American economy, for two things, the Americans were not interested in slotting themselves at the age of 14 or 15 into one profession, trade, or guild, or even location for life, you know, to become a welder in Boston and join that union, and that sets your trajectory for the rest of your life, that didn't seem to be part of what made America work. People had come there because they wanted opportunities, they wanted to move, they wanted to see what the rest of the country had or had to offer. Industries were changing all the time, cities were being built and rebuilt, and in that context, nobody wanted to lock themselves in. And so... In the United States, from very early on, the early 19th century, the idea was, no, people should get a broad-based general education, and then they can learn on the job, they'll change jobs, circumstances will change, they'll go to a new city. And that became the kind of distinctive formulation uh, that America added to the sort of classic German streaming system. Now, the, the idea of a liberal education, as I say, you know, probably uh, one would have to credit Britain, but really it goes back a, a very long way. Um, the idea of a liberal education really comes from ancient Greece. 
for most of human history, education was skills-based, by which I mean hunters, farmers, and warriors taught the young to hunt, farm, and fight. And that was considered the education you were giving young people. That Even the ruling class, the sons of princes or kings were given a skills-based education in the sense they were told, here are the things you need to understand to be able to, be a, to, to rule this tribe uh, or, the, or this uh, community. About 2,500 years ago in Athens, um, they decided to start experimenting with a new form of government, uh, democracy. And uh, Pericles in his funeral oration talks very specifically about how this is a new form of government and how this innovation in government requires an innovation in education. Because if people are now going to actually govern themselves, well, then they need more than just this very mechanical, skills-based training. And from there develops the idea of this broader-based liberal education. The, 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 the term uh, liberal education or uh, uh, liberal arts education was coined by the Romans. The first use I think we have is, is, is in Cicero. Um, but it refers to the Greeks, and it refers to the kind of education that, that the Greeks uh, believed in. And the reason it is called liberal, of course, um, is because it relates to the origins of the word liberal, uh, which are as pertaining to free men. In other words, it has nothing to do with the left-right context that we, that we place things in today. It is a reference to the idea of liberty, the idea of the kind of mind you want to create in an open, free society, and the kind of education you'd want to give free men and women so that they could govern themselves. I'm being politically correct. Obviously, at the time, they meant just free men. Um, but... But the idea behind it was always that this kind of education will allow people to go on. Now, the interesting thing is we now think of it as essentially a kind of non-scientific education. The liberal, liberal arts people meaning humanities and the, you know, the things people want to defund tend to be art history and things like that. But in its origins, science was very much a part of, of a liberal uh, education. In fact, it was at the, at the center of it, or at, it was an important component. But here's a very interesting paradox. In those days, you studied science for the exact opposite reason that you study it today. Today, we study science, let's face it, because we think this is the way to get a good job. This is the way to be sure that you will be able to get uh, a, a good job, high paying, you have a career. In those days, that it was actually the opposite. The way you got a good job, the way you secured yourself in terms of career was to study history, politics, law, rhetoric, particularly rhetoric, because that was the world that existed or you farmed. Science was something that had no practical application in the world. You know, think of 300 BC, or even think of until the Middle Ages, really, the late Middle Ages. Science had absolutely no practical value. The reason you studied science was to understand the mysteries of the universe. It was purely an abstract search for knowledge. And in a very strange way, I think we have almost flipped the way we think of these things now. Science is the you know, determinedly pra practical way you, you, you get yourself a job. And yeah, if you want to read Ulysses you know, or, or something like that, because somehow it's going to help you understand the truth, you do it. Um, and I think that a little humility is in order to recognize that these things change. You know, what, 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 what is at sometimes considered practical 
becomes impractical or what sometimes is considered uh, a, a, an abstract search for knowledge turns out to have some practical ampl- application. The, the question that I think gives this some urgency is how do you make sure that not just you individuals have a, a, a job or a career that you can look forward to and you know that will we'll provide you with the kind of uh, financial security that you want, but how do societies uh, make sure that they are themselves vibrant, dynamic, and growing? So in other words, how do you get innovation in a society? Uh, this is one of the things that – one of the great buzzwords of our time is innovation. And nobody really knows exactly what it means, and many pe- people mean many different things by it. But it's, it's worth sort of thinking about what you mean when you talk about innovation. Because at one level, innovation is, you know, the number of Nobel Prizes in science you have, the number of people who study theoretical physics or math. At another level, people mean by it the kind of very high-quality engineering that a country like Germany is able to, to do decade after decade. Uh, at another level, people mean the kind of startups that, that come out of the United States uh, in, in particular. Um, and which of them you mean you know, tends to, very, to, to bias your, your decision in terms of what you're going to talk about. But the one thing I think most people would agree is that the United States um, is has done pretty well in this regard. But here's the puzzle. The Americans are the most anxious about it because they look at these international test scores. The OECD does a set of a series of tests called the PISA tests. Um, and these tests basically uh, are run, I think, about every two or three years. And they test 15-year-olds on math and reading. And the United States does pretty badly. It, does, it comes out in the middle of the pack. And this has caused enormous anxiety. You know, this and the number of engineers who, who graduate from Chinese universities are the two things that make Americans, you know, sure that they're, they're, they're running, you know, their luck is going to run out. Um, and I looked at these, these tests. They're pretty good tests. And then I asked myself, okay, how did the United States do 10 years ago on these tests? About middle of the pack. How did they do 20 years ago? About middle of the pack. So I went back to 1964, which is the first time these tests were done. Twelve countries. The United States took part. It was about middle of the pack. So you have to ask yourself, okay, so it's, it's pretty clear now that American students at 15 are not able to do quadratic, quadratic equations as well as South Korean students. But if you ask yourself from 1965 forward, what country has dominated the world of science, research, technology, entrepreneurship, startups, and you know any of those definitions of innovation, you'd probably say the United States. Well, if you look at the world of uh, technology today, uh, what is really almost unprecedented is the degree of American domination. If you go back 30 or 40 years ago, you would have had to talk, you know, think about that, the world of technology then, which would have been consumer electronics, cars, things like that. You'd have had to talk about Japanese companies, there would have been uh, some northern European companies, certainly German companies. Today, in the, in, in the industries, the leading technological industries of the world, I mean, really, there is, there is, it's almost embarrassing. There is no non-American company. Um, Germany, which is this great engine of, uh, of engineering that people often talk about, has one company that is in the space of the post-industrial information economy, uh, SAP, the, uh, the software company, and it's 30 years old. 
the entire the entire space of you know uh, mobile telephony. Uh, social networking, uh, nanotech, biotech, what you see are increasingly American-dominated companies. So how is it that the United States can be so good at innovation and so bad at test-taking? So I thought to myself, all right, what other countries are considered highly innovative? And the interesting thing is, if you look at these rankings, and of course, you know, take all these rankings with a grain of salt, but the two countries that stand out are Sweden uh, and Israel. Uh, if you look at the rankings, if you look at per capita, R&D, number of startups, again, adjusted for population, Sweden, for example, gets more venture capital funding than Britain or Germany, even though those are much larger economies. And what's interesting about both uh, Sweden and Israel is that they also do very badly on the PISA tests. In fact, they do worse than the United States does on those tests. So what is it here? Is there, is there actually a correlation between you? Do you have to do badly in these tests to, uh, to, to innovate? I don't think that's it. I think that it's a very worthwhile reminder that what produces economic dynamism, innovation, even technological innovation, is a very complicated thing. Uh, and it's produced by a whole host of factors. And this one measure, which is how your 15-year-olds are doing at math, may not be the only measure. It may not be the most relevant measure. What are probably the other ones? Well, if you look at those three societies, what do they have in common? They all have very flexible economies. They're all very dynamic. They're all very young countries in, in terms of the, the way in which they operate, non-hierarchical in their work uh, environments. Uh, and perhaps that, that lack of hier- uh, hierarchy is one of the crucial things, because when I look at Asian countries, one of the things that strikes me is they may have lots of engineers, but no junior engineer ever challenges what the senior engineer does. No assistant professor ever challenges what the chairman of a department does. No student ever challenges what the professor does. The ability to be irreverent, rude, insolent, uh, disruptive might be actually a very powerful indicator of whether you have the, the ability to innovate in that sense. Um, they're also all very confident. So you can actually measure this. You can, you, at the end of the, the PISA test, they ask kids, okay, you've done the math. Now, how did you think you did? So the funny thing is that the United States has always had the same result. They always do very badly in math, and they always think they've done really well. Uh, and, and, uh, and it led William Bennett, when he was Secretary of Education, to quip, you know, it's, 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 the, the, our problem is clear. We are much better at teaching self-esteem than science. Um, but actually, I think, while it's a good joke, it, it, there may be something very important to self-esteem and confidence. And all of you who have traveled to America or come from America know that the whole American system, you know, I, I watch, I have kids, and I watch when we take them skiing in, in, in America, you know, every turn they make, the, the ski instructor says, this is fantastic, you're doing so well. <laughs> so I, I took them to, uh, to, uh, to uh, Switzerland, but to the German part of Switzerland, so this is basically to, to Germany. And uh, the guy looks at my son, who's a very, very good skier, and he says... Okay, you made four mistakes as you came down. One, two, three, four. Um, and, you know, the American system is really, you know, perhaps overdoes it on the, on the building self-esteem. 
But think about, think about life for an entrepreneur, right? You have to believe in yourself when everybody is telling you that your idea doesn't work. Your idea probably doesn't work. Your first or second or third idea doesn't work. And still, you have to pick yourself up, believe in yourself, think that there is, you have something to, you know, to produce a value and manage to keep going. Maybe having a little bit of self-esteem and, and having had that kind of uh, an education that builds your confidence has a lot to do with it. And by the way, again, the Swedes and the Israelis have the same pattern, which is they, bo- they do badly in the tests and they think they do very well. So that, you know, if you look at the, the um, this might surprise you because it's Sweden. I think Sweden came 27th out of 34 countries in the, in the math. And on the confidence uh, index, they were sixth. So there's, again, this wide disparity between the actual achievement. By the way, you'd be amused to know the South Koreans are exactly the opposite. South Korea came first in math, and when asked how they did, they said terribly. We all did terribly. They were like 32 out of 34 in terms of the, the self-esteem. Um, so you, you know, perhaps you want a balance, but um, certainly it doesn't seem to have hurt uh, the United States to have this sense of, this sense of confidence. Um, if you, if you ask yourself, again, what you mean by innovation, I think you begin to get a sense of why it is, it is a measure that is not as easy to, to determine on the basis of these tests. Because, you know, when countries talk about innovation, um, they're talking about the ability to create new industries, new companies, new processes, and things like that. It's not all about technology. You know, if you look at the, you can see this in the, in the British Industrial Revolution. There were many designs for the steam engine. The one that wins out, the one that becomes the great company, that becomes the great industry, is often one where there is an innovation not just in technology, but actually in a business practice uh, that relates to that technology. The best example of this is the Singer Sewing Machine Company, which became the world's dominant sewing machine company, an American company. There were many sewing machine companies at the time that the Singer Sewing Machine Company was started. The innovation that they had was actually had nothing to do with the technology. The machine might have been better or worse, I don't know. Uh, and frankly, you know, there are mixed views on that. They had two great innovations. The first is they recognized that for the first time, you needed to sell a piece of heavy machinery, which is what this was considered, to women, not men, because they were the ones who were going to use it. And so it had to be designed in a way that women could understand and use and and would make the purchasing decision on. The second was they developed an installment plan, uh, which was the first time machinery had been sold on, on an installment basis. Now, those are kind of business practice innovations rather than pure technological innovations. And you might think that that's, well, that was a very different time. But, you know, if you think about uh, something like Apple, Apple in some ways has the best technology, but for all those of you who have ever tried to type on an iPhone keyboard, you know that there are some areas where the technology is not as good. I mean, anyone who has used a BlackBerry and then moved to an iPhone knows that there, there is a, you know, you've actually gone down, you've gone backwards technologically in some areas. What they have figured out much better is how human beings might want to use this phone in a different way than other people did. Before Apple, and I'm exaggerating slightly, but before Apple, the thought, the the, the bizarre, idiotic thought that most people had was that people wanted to use phones to make phone calls. 
right? Now, if you think about how much you use your phone to make a phone call anymore, that's the innovation, which was they recognized that actually what you were holding in your hand was a computer, increasingly a supercomputer, and that you could do in you could do all kinds of other things with it, and that that. Phone is optimized for those transactions, not not for the two ones that in some ways it started out with, which was uh, voice, text, and then email. Uh, and in those areas, Apple innovated. And most importantly, perhaps, it produces something beautiful. It produces something that just has an almost sensual dimension to it. This is something Bill Gates, um, that Steve Jobs, is very conscious of. Jobs talks about how the most important class he ever took was a calligraphy class at Reed College because it made him understand how integral design was to the way in which we perceived and used uh, information. And that from then on, he had this enormous focus on design. And you see it, by the way, in the simplest way, which was, if, for those of you who are old enough to remember, the difference between the fonts that the Macintosh computer used and the fonts that every other computer used. The Macintosh was very focused on making sure that whatever you were typing into the computer looked beautiful. Um, and that has stayed with him. So that Jobs was once asked when he introduced the iPhone, I think this, he said, it's not technology alone that makes Apple's products. It is technology married to the liberal arts uh, that is in our DNA, that makes our, our hearts sing. If you look at Mark Zuckerberg, um, who started Facebook, a very interesting conversation in the course of having writing this book, um, where he explained to me that he thought that the core insight that led to Facebook was actually psychological, sociological, not technological. See, before uh, Facebook, the internet was a land of anonymity. Um, we don't remember this again now, but it, most people didn't, you didn't have real, you didn't reveal your real identity on those uh, discussion boards and in chat rooms. Everybody was anonymous, or they had a handle of some kind. Uh, which is why they were so venomous in many cases. Um, what Zuckerberg realized that if you could create a safe environment where people could actually reveal their true identities, you would create a platform and a community that would be much richer, deeper, and more engaged. And that is really the fundamental insight that Facebook uh, is powered by. Obviously, it has fantastic technology, but that was the difference between uh, Facebook and its competitors. That was the, the advance that Facebook made. Uh, and so when he talks about psychology, and, and by the way, um, Mark Zuckerberg was a psychology major before he dropped out uh, at, at Harvard, from Harvard to found Facebook. And before that, when he was at uh, Phillips Exeter, which is, I don't know, sort of like the, the Winchester of, uh, of England, um, he, was, uh, he studied ancient Greek. That was his, that was his uh, specialty. So he was very much somebody, a product of a liberal education, who also was passionate about computers. But again, there you see this, uh, this, this marriage that, that Jobs was talking about. Finally, if you look at Jeff Bezos, who starts Amazon, a, you know, incredibly technologically innovative company. Uh, you get an in, you, you get an insight into how he views things by the way in which he holds his senior manager meetings. So the senior manager meeting at Amazon goes this way: people get into a room and they sit they they sit down, and for the first 
30 minutes of the meeting, everybody reads the memo that is being just going to be discussed. So somebody, anyone who wants to make a proposal at Amazon has to write down on paper um, six pages, single-spaced, a memo that outlines the argument behind the strategy. And then, because Bezos wants to make sure that everyone has actually read this and is not pretending to have read it, the meeting begins with a, what he calls study hall, in which people actually are forced to read this. And then they have a conversation about it so everybody is not, frankly, bullshitting. Right? Think about the pressure it places on you as a writer, as the uh, person proposing the strategy, to write a memo that you know everyone is going to read while you're in the room, uh, including Bezos. Uh, and think about the pressure it puts on the, on the company to make sure that these, these memos are tightly argued. And his argue, Bezos' argument for doing it is, uh, if you cannot articulate the strategy you want on paper, um, it means that there are holes in it. It means that there are gaps. It means that, you know, you can always fudge things over in a conversation. You can't when you have to actually commit, lie, write it down. And so even there you see, Princeton, Bezos is a Princeton uh, engineer by training, um, the, the commitment to this general education and the skills that it provides. I think today in the, you know, the kind of corporate world, you'd call this kind of thing out-of-the-box thinking or synergy or you know, intersections of disciplines. The truth of the matter is it's always been true that this is the way in which human knowledge has progressed. It has always been by the, the clash and the collision of different fields and disciplines because it, that's what gives you the perspective to be able to do something distinctive. To, to sit back. So there's this wonderful new biography of the Wright brothers. And you ask yourself, these are the people who invented the, the airplane. How did they come to this? And David McCullough, the, 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 uh, the guy who wrote the book, points out that the key, you know, in some ways we don't think of it this way, but perhaps one of the most important innovations was to recognize that the plane's wings don't need to flap. Because you think to yourself, well, what, how are you trying to figure out how to fly? Well, you look at birds, and you think that, well, the birds flap their wings. Um, you might recall Icarus tried this, and it didn't work out so well. Uh, but in his case, just because he, you know, he used the, the, the wrong glue, at least so he thought. But what, what the Wright brothers recognized was that wasn't really the relevant way to think about this. The relevant way to think about it was how do eagles soar? Why is it that an eagle can, for 45 minutes, fly in a, you know, directing himself, uh, itself, without, without flapping it, its wings? What is the aerodynamics of that? How does that work? And the reason they, they, they thought about this is obviously they were looking out in the sky, but they also read deeply and broadly in history. They were very, very well read, autodidacts, who spend an enormous amount of time trying to understand the natural world around them, understand you know, past attempts at these kind of things. They've, they've, their house was full of books. They were tinkerers. They, were, they ran a bicycle shop. But one has to remember, bicycles in you know, the 1890s, this was high tech. Um, and a bicycle has to be very aerodynamic to, to be able to, to work. So even then, they had understood the importance of that kind of, uh, that kind of aerodynamism. But what it, it, it reveals to you more broadly is this idea that there is a kind of richness of, uh, that, that you have to build around you 
to then be able to apply it in an interesting way in almost any in, in almost any field. And I, I feel as though that central message is the one that a liberal education can provide more than any other. It's not against science, it's not for science, but it is uh, that you really do have to try to step back and look at the whole picture. Because these, by the way, even in science, things are happening not in chemistry and biology and physics. They're happening in the world. And we have chosen to artificially divide this up into theory, you know, chemistry, biology, and physics. Think about the Big Bang. The Big Bang is some, you know, some kind of uh, quasi-nuclear explosion, right? That is a sort of generally something that phys the physicists explain to you. That Big Bang then produces a series of chemical reactions that produce this planet that has a certain atmosphere and a certain chemistry within it. So that's the chemistry of it. And then that chemistry produces the ability for some kind of life to form. Uh, in, you know, initially in, the, in, 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 in water and in swamps. And that's the biology of it. But in, re in the real world, it's all happening you know, at the same time. And you have, we have chosen to divide it up and say, the physicist will explain this piece of it, the, ke the chemistry explains the second part, which is the chemical reactions, and the biologists start, you know, try, try to understand how life works. But that's true in everything in life. It's all happening at the same time. And the more you understand, the more you're going to be able to apply it. And if you think about how advanced industrial countries are going to be able to survive in this, in this new world, and this gets me back, as I said, to my, my regular beat, um, it does seem to me that we are living in a world in which the two great forces that are shaping it are globalization and the information revolution. And they're both accelerating. And what that means is that China is now online, Africa is coming online, India is coming online. These, these countries are able to do all kinds of routine tasks that were once done in the Western world. So for people living in the West, the question of what you are going to do and how you're going to innovate and what kind of job you uh, are going to have is going to have to take that into account. You know, you cannot pretend that this, that this isn't going to keep happening. You can't turn off the machine. Uh, you know, trade is going to continue to grow, as it has for the last 50 years, with or, with or without trade agreements, with or without, uh, you know, particular uh, pieces of legislation. Uh, the information revolution is going to continue. Products are going to get more and more digitized, no matter what you do. Uh, and, and everything is getting digitized, in a way, because software now is able to exploit, control, and make more efficient everything. I mean, think about how Uber has been able to do that with the taxi industry, uh, how Airbnb is able to do that with the hotel industry. Airbnb has created more hotel rooms in its brief existence, which is, I believe, three or four years, than two of the, the two largest hotel chains in the world. I, I saw that statistic recently. They've, you know, in a sense, built more hotel uh, rooms than the two largest hotel chains in the world in three, four years. So that's, all that's going to continue to happen. The question we have to ask in the West is, how do you add value in a world like that? Well, it's not going to be by you know, manufacturing sneakers, um, and it's not going to be by making computer chips that are routine commoditized manufacturing as well at a very high level. 
But, you know, that stuff is either going to happen in places like South Korea or uh, it is going to happen in the West, but with very few people. You know, Intel has these new plants that they've all opened in the United States, four or five billion dollar cost to each one of these plants. And yet, if you ask yourself how many people are employed in these huge plants, the size of two football fields laid end to end, 3,000, something like that, 20, no, no, I'm talking about 24 hours, every shift, everybody included. Um, a Ford factory at its height would, would, would employ 40,000 people, 50,000 people. So you, the, the, the path is going to have to be to find ways to think about how human beings use technology, uh, enrich that experience, enhance it through social, psychological insights, design, marketing. You know, anyone can make the $30 pair of sneakers. The trick is how do you sell it for $300? And for that, you have to build a story around it. You have to have beautiful design. You have to have great marketing. And that becomes the challenge. And that becomes a challenge for the Western world in general. And that's where you know, innovation occurs. So you may not regard it as you know, quite as mind-blowing technologically, but I often think one of the greatest innovators of our time is Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks. Because here's a man who is able to look at a cup, a cup of coffee, which in the United States you could buy for 50 cents 10 years ago, and say, I'm going to sell that for $7, <laughs> right? And I'm going to figure out how you can sell that for $7. Now, you know, from that is born one of the largest companies in the world. That's innovation. And you can't, you know, and, and, and one shouldn't belittle it because it doesn't come along with fancy technology. And by the way, that too is now getting uh, affected by technology because they learn a lot more about their customers and figure out uh, how and what to do with them. I, I think that I, I just in conclusion say the, you know, the, the, the core message of the book, if there is one, is um, that we shouldn't be so pessimistic. That the reality is that if you look at the last 30 or 40 years, the forces that we all look at very anxiously have already been upon us. They have already been coursing through the global system, coursing through Western economies. And by and large, Western economies have done all right. Everybody grumbles in the, in the West all the time. I realize, and maybe because I grew up in India, I can see this. But look, look at the life of an average person in the West today compared with 40 years ago. Ask yourself in terms of, you know, the size of the house, the kind of the house, the uh, access to technology, the ability to access information from anywhere in the world, the ability to, uh, you know, enhance your quality of life through health and medicine and, uh, and, and all those kinds of things. You, even if it's true that wages have not risen that much in the last 15 or 20 years, and there's an interesting debate about whether you measure this, you wouldn't want to trade places. You wouldn't want to go back, even if you had two, you know, two or three percent more uh, spending power, and give up these amazing technological innovations that have massively improved the quality of life of everybody. Um, and so, if you think of it in those terms, and you say to yourself, also, it is hard to achieve sustained, lasting, you know, four percent growth when you're starting at these extraordinary bases that you are here, you know. Per capita GDP in the United Kingdom and the United States is around $50,000 a year. Um, just to remind you, it's about 8500 in China. It's 1800 in India. So, yes, it's, you know, it's easier for India to grow at 6% than it is for the United States to grow at 4%. But you don't need 
uh, breakneck growth to achieve real, lasting, measurable increases in the quality of life, uh, in increases in the ability for human beings to have greater autonomy, control, uh, and to pursue what Thomas Jefferson talked about when founding the United States, which was the pursuit of happiness. So I look at this new world with ap apprehension, concern, but mostly with a great sense of optimism and a great sense of uh, adventure that we are going to go through these great, great revolutions. The Western world will be impacted by it. But in the end, it has to be a good thing that you have billions of people now participating in a global system that, who were always shut out, that you have technologies now that allow you to connect to these people and improve productivity and improve, improve the ability of any individual anywhere to have access and use this information. So I, I, I end with a, with a, with, with a with much, I don't want to say it's sanguine, um, but it is uh, a sense of adventure and a sense of optimism. Thank you very much. That was wonderful, really wonderful. We managed to go from ancient Greece to Starbucks, which I think is quite an achievement. Um, I want to ask Fried a quick question, but before that, I want to ask the audience a question, which is, and this isn't a test, I'm not trying to um, put you on the spot or anything, but I'm, ge I'm genuinely curious. Um, how many people here have read some of uh, Pericles' funeral oration? Obviously, not necessarily in the ancient Greek. Um, but how many people? Do you mind putting your hands up? I don't. How many people have re read? Bits of, okay, that's quite encouraging. Yeah, that was perhaps a thought. Um, I'm, I was very encouraged by that. Um, I just wanted to ask you a question, though, going by, going back to this idea of uh, liberal, because you didn't define it as such. I mean, in the wider sense, your book, I know you ended optimistically there, but your book kind of presupposes that there's a threat, and you mentioned to, to the actual institutions of uh, liberal education. Do you think it fits into a pattern to a threat to you know, the classic liberalism per se? That you mentioned technology, uh, but also there's a sense of the power of faith at the moment, uh, the power of uh, kind of materialism, of technology, of science. Do you think that, in the political sense, uh, that there that liberalism is in crisis? Full stop. Certainly, the kind of um, enlightenment thinking. That, uh, that that was at the heart of liberalism is in is in some crisis because I think there is a there is a sense um, among its supporters there is there is a kind of um, a loss of confidence because it is not producing the kind of wondrous results that people thought it would produce um, and it is being met with a kind of more spirited re reaction than I think most people would have thought of. You know, I mean, it's the Yeats's line, the, be the, the, the worst are, what is it, the, the best are full of, the worst are full of passionate intensity, the, the best lack all conviction, and the worst are full of passionate intensity. So I, I'm revealing my, my biases here, but, you know, I look at the, at the United States and you have this extraordinary situation where in some ways the most advanced country in the world on things like, you know, God, guns, and gays, uh, has, you know, views that I find sad, particularly with regard to science. You know, you have this governor um, uh, in the South, Bobby Jindal, who is a 
who is a uh, biology major at, from Brown University who has signed the creationism pledge. I mean, I think that says it all, right? I mean, he's, he's, he majored in biology in one of the great universities of the world, and he signed a pledge that says that, you know, that the world was created by God in, in seven days, well, six days. He rested for one, of course. Um, and uh, you, you go to... Uh, the, the, the Islamic world, the Muslim world, and you see it, you know, in blinding uh, and, and, and horrifying reality, this, this reaction to modernization and to the modernizing liberal, in, you know, enlightenment project. But even you go to Israel and you see the, the rise of religious conservatism and the, the Haredi. And so, you know, it's sort of everywhere. Um, and those are the people, they don't outnumber you know the kind of vast majority, but they they have all the energy. They have they they have the sense uh, that they want to change the world. And I think those of us who believe in the liberal project, liberal small L, are somewhat defensive. Yeah. Obviously, it's a word that means different things in different places. Would anybody like to ask a question? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start at the back rather than the front. How, how many? Mike's got, should, would you like to go to the gentleman in the blue at the back there, please? And was anybody on this side? That guy there in the pink shirt. Take one at a time. I don't disagree with anything that you've said, but I'm curious as to what your policy implications of it are, because the education system you're describing seems to be geared towards the geniuses. And at, it, at, it, at its extreme, the people who drop out of the education system that exists as it currently stands. So for the vast majority of people, and this is a typical Chinese criticism of American education, most people won't aspire to be a Mark Zuckerberg or Howard Schultz or a Jeff Bezos. So for most people, what are the implications? True. It's a very, it's a very fair question. I would say that the, 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 my, my focus certainly is on the upper end of education, uh, but it isn't just at the geniuses or the or the, the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. Look, the um, the American economy and really the modern British economy, by which I mean for the last 60, 70 years, has been powered by lots of people who got general education, liberal education. Um, you know, if, if you go to Wall Street and you ask people what their educational background was, you will be surprised at the number of people who are ma majored in English and history and philosophy. The company I work for. So CNN is owned by Turner, which is owned by Time Warner. Time Warner is one of the great media conglomerates in the world. It owns Warner Brothers. It owns HBO. The person who runs it, who was the, uh, comes from, a, you know, was chief financial officer before that, uh, Jeff Bukas, is a philosophy major from Yale. And he would argue that that was a very powerful training uh, that, that, that helped him uh, along the way. So I think that my, my point would be people should have the confidence that when they are at this precious point in their lives, 18 to 22, they should build as broadly and deeply as they can. They should not try to get some specific trade-based, career-based training that might get them that first job, but that will be irrelevant 10 years later. The, the president of Harvard told me the point of a, of, a, of a good education is not to prepare you for your first job, it's to prepare you for your sixth job. Um, because the truth of the matter is, you're going to be working, uh, and I look out at all, most of you who are quite young, you're going to be working 
10, 15 years from now, probably in companies that don't exist today, possibly in industries that don't exist today. What should you train for? What I notice happening in the United States, and I think this is true in England as well, in Britain as well, is lots of people, not this drum, this anxiety is not making lots of people become engineers, because frankly, <laughs> that's tough. Also, not everybody has the aptitude for it. Uh, instead, what it's doing is, is making everybody become business studies majors or communications arts majors or, you know, marketing majors. And it just feels to me like this is a tragedy. You're, you're taking you know, this incredibly important point in your life. And you're, you're, you're majoring in stuff that sounds like it's going to get you a job, and it's, but it's really hot air. Uh, what you should be doing is using this time to, to learn real stuff and engage your mind with real material. And, and you know what? Marketing is not so hard. You'll be able to figure it out if you, when, you, when you go to Procter & Gamble. <laughs> Which, at which point I feel obliged to defend the media department's employability ratio. <laughs> Please. Um, you've written about the um, emergence of a post-American order and the shift away from power from the west to the east. So, how do you? Um, how does? What's, what's the implication of this theory about the lack of liberal education and innovation in the non-Western countries like China? What, yeah. what, what do you think that has for the implication of that trend of sh uh, the shifting away of power? And um, secondly, um, you've talked about how this. Um, decline of deference and the lack of um, obedience in like the um, Western education system is a spur on innovation. How do you sort of reconcile that with the fact that 500 years ago when China was sort of like at the forefront of innovation and technology where they were like um, the, most, the, the most developed country in terms of de uh, developing technology, how do you um, reconcile that with the fact that they had a very Confucian and very sort of bureaucratized um, education system and a lot of um, obedience? Sure. They're both very good questions. Let me take the, the second one first. So part of the way I reconcile uh, that, uh, the, the, the issue of China and its, and its greatness is, in my opinion, that is vastly exaggerated and overblown. In fact, there's a chapter in my, uh, in my book, The Post-American World, in which I go through the data very carefully. Um, the idea that China was, you know, at the center of the world 200 years ago and is just simply returning to it and was as advanced as the West is frankly nonsense. Uh, if you look at the data, it, it's, it, the reason people can make that claim is because in pure GDP terms, 200 years ago, 250 years ago, China had a larger GDP than the West. Why? Because GDP was just agriculture. And agriculture was just population. So literally, if you had more people, you would tend to have a, more, a larger GDP. It says nothing about the quality of that GDP, the per capita income, the rise in per capita income, all of which, on all of those measures, the West by the 16th century is completely separating itself from the rest of the world. We have lived for four or five hundred years in a world dominated by the West that has invented modernity. That's why all these Asian countries, when they look back, you know, and they're trying to figure out how do they, how, how can they be modern and retain their original original culture. It's so difficult. Look at what all of us are wearing right now. We all come from different parts of the world. And if you go back to the countries you came from, they're all wearing the same clothes. These are all Western clothes. 
The language of business is English. The idea of of double entry bookkeeping is 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 Western. It was invented in Venice in the, in the 15th century. The whole conception of of modern life that we have was invented by the West. And and by the way, this is why this is why it's been so difficult for the Muslim world to come to grips with that because Islam is another great Abrahamic faith that sees that sees this as a as a a, a, a win loss situation it 's very difficult to accommodate you, I see this you see an Indian immigrant who goes to a, 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 a non uh, Indian country the The Hindu is much easier to, for him to adapt because Hinduism is a kind of strange mixture of you know pagan rites and rituals, a philosophy of life. It's very accommodating. Uh, it's amazingly adaptive in that way. And so you can be a Hindu in, in, in New York or Germany, no problem. For a Muslim, it's a much more difficult, because that, because that tension of recognizing that you are in a world shaped by a competing Abrahamic faith is much greater. Um, the, the, one simple way to think about it is this. When were the first universities founded in, in uh, China? They were founded about 100 years ago by Western missionaries. If China were really dominating the world of innovation, science, I think we'd have some examples of 15th century Chinese universities. We don't. You do have them, by the way, in the Islamic world. That, again, is why you have the, one of the great tragedies of the Islamic world is that Al-Azhar University is founded around the same time as Oxford. Do you know when Al-Azhar started to teach modern subjects like science and mathematics? 1962. That that you know tells you. So that's your second point. On the first one, it's a very good one. Um, both the questions were ex- excellent. Um, you, it, this is going to be a great challenge. The rise of the rest continues. The, the forces I describe in my book are going to happen no matter what, because these countries are growing from very low per capita GDPs. So China, as I say, is at eight thousand dollars per capita GDP. And once it gets to ten, it is clearly the largest economy in the world, no matter how you measure it. Right, India is at 1,200. Once it gets to 6,000, I think I, th- I may have the number wrong, but about 6,000, it becomes the third largest economy in the world. So these countries are going to have a huge impact on the world. They're going to have a huge footprint on the world, no matter whether they get to be, you know, rich countries on a per capita GDP basis, whether whether they are able to all become like Singapore or not. Whether they will be able to do that will be determined. Whether they can take that last step will be determined by whether they can be innovative, whether they can really add value beyond basic and routine manufacturing. Historically, it's been very hard. So if you look at the number of countries that have managed to get to middle income status, and this is all World Bank numbers, it's like 35, 40 countries around the world outside of the West I'm now talking about. If you ask yourself how many of those countries were able to make it to high income level, Singapore, uh, Japan, Hong Kong, South Korea, Chile. I don't think I've missed any. It's, I think it's five countries. So it, that final barrier is much harder because you have to then modernize every element of your society and you have to be able to add value beyond basically low-wage manufacture which has tended to be the path to middle-income status for any successful developing country. But low-wage manufacture only gets you so far. And whether or not you can do that will depend on this question uh, of, of, um, of whether or not you can change the way in which you think. So all of which is to tell you, I, I, I do think that uh, 
that you need to be rude, insolent, and disruptive in order to innovate. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the Chinese will have to learn. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Um, let's move down the front here. There's a chap in the red. Have we got any other people of a non-male gender? Thank you. Um, <laughs> mind just taking one to those two? Now, in the middle there, you can fight amongst yourselves. Which one are you would like to... Okay, far away, please. So I'd like to challenge this idea that there has been, that there is a crisis of liberal education because we may, we may not be calling the degree liberal education, but it seems that when you speak, you draw a fine line between students who study liberal education degrees and students that don't. I have friends that study science. That's not to say they're not getting a liberal education. One of the things that you talked about was globalization. Globalization has helped break down the barriers a lot of the time between different education stratifications. So I have friends at Imperial, but they read Pericles, they read Cicero, they read Petronius, they read all these things. They are giving themselves a liberal education in their spare time. So just because they're not studying liberal education, does that really mean they're not getting a liberal education? You know, um, I, th- I, th- I, I hope you're right. Uh, I think that that's more true, uh, honestly, in, in the United States than it is here. Because so, for instance, if you got a, a degree, as Jeff Bezos did, from Princeton in engineering, at least half your courses would have to be outside of engineering. And in fact, you would be required to take a certain number in humanities and history. Um, I think that's less true at a place like Imperial. Correct me if I'm wrong. But you're right that there are people who may be doing it. And here's some, something which I think is very important. One of the reasons I've written this book is because I don't think that this should just be a province of either people who are rich or privileged or have the aptitude even to to study this stuff. The beauty of the online revolution that is taking place in education is that anyone could do this. You now have access to the best courses at the best universities in the world by the best professors. And if you are an engineer or, you know, somebody or, frankly, if you're doing uh, English history uh, and you decide to yourself, you know, I've always felt like I needed to take one course in physics to understand what exactly the quantum revolution is. Well, you can do it now. You know, uh, that that transformation, what I hope that means is everybody can build their own little liberal education or their own general education, and you don't have the problems of cost, accreditation, things like that. I have to say, it sounds like you travel in very educated company. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, first of all, thank you for a very interesting talk. Um, I would like to get your comments on the marketization of liberal education. Um, the what? Sorry, the the marketization. How the ten- the tendency to teach orthodox theories. I study development myself here, and most of the economics, and also about how to develop countries, is actually based within the more orthodox way of seeing the world. And I would take, especially for an American economy, we need to look beyond innovation for consumption and look at how we tackle more fundamental issues. You know, the problem right now of being, you know, indebted Americans have taken up too much debt so they can buy the Starbucks coffee and the Apple products. So for more looking at production and looking at how societies can thrive and prosperity, you know, in the long run, how do we make innovation not just in consumption products, but maybe more fundamentally? Yeah, yeah. Look, I I, I understand uh, the point, and um, how how best to respond to it. I think that I'm not as worried um, at the in the in the broadest terms that the United States has turned into a culture of consumption uh, and 
you know, one where there isn't enough of an emphasis on production, though clearly in the last financial crisis that was one of the precipitating factors. Look, economies are different, societies are different. Um, I think that the perspective you bring uh, has a particular uh, origin or bias, which is, I'm I'm just going to describe it as such, I'm not saying that this is you, the sort of German view of the world, which is we should all make stuff, we should all save, uh, and to do otherwise is not just bad economics, but it's bad morality. It's like it's, there's something deeply immoral about spending, you know, about about uh, wasteful consumption. There's something deeply immoral about industries where you're not actually physically making stuff. And you know, as I say, Germany is an incredible success story. I mean, the Germans are you know extraordinary uh, in, in many many dimensions, but. The industries of the future, they have been a big failure. I mean, what Germany does best right now is cars, chemicals, machine tools. These are all second industrial revolution industries. This is stuff that was being done in the 1890s, 1920s. This is very old stuff. They do it very well. And they do it so well that they can charge a 30 or 40% premium, uh, which is what the German, the basic German economic model is. They over-engineer products, market them superbly, and make you pay 40% more for them. That's, that's BMW. That's you know, whatever it is, at whatever price point, that is the German style. It's fantastic. But I just, I'm not sure that it's the only way to approach it. And it's also important to point out, you know, not everybody can be Germany. The German model relies on somebody out there being the wasteful consumer of German products. Right? So, somebody, somebody out there has to be buying the BMWs. If the, the, the German model, you know, depends upon a certain anti-German attitude that is held, you know, frankly, in large countries like the United States. Um, otherwise, it doesn't work. And this is, in a, in a, you know, in a nutshell, this is the the crisis in the euro, uh, in 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 Europe, which is that at some level, what what I think people like Larry Summers are telling Germany is you have have to finance your consumers. If you don't finance your consumers, they can't buy your stuff. And the Germans are saying, yes, but it's deeply immoral to just be taking on debt to buy goods. But what they don't seem to realize is those goods are all German. And so how, if, you know, how can the German economy grow at 3% if it's not? It's, you know, all of which is to say, I think that there's a diversity that, that, uh, that applies. The United States, consumption is almost 70% of, of GDP in America. Uh, I think it's closer to 50% maybe in Germany. It's 35% in China. What are the other countries where consumption is close to 70%? India and Indonesia. So what do you notice? Large, messy, chaotic places where the government has no ability to control individuals from doing whatever the hell they want. Uh, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's going to be the... But, but I don't think, by the, by the way, by the same token, I don't think Germany's going to ever change. I don't think... I mean, most my German friends, and these are, you know, in, in some cases very wealthy people, still don't use credit cards. To an American, it is incomprehensible <laughs> that you would have somebody in an advanced industrial country that still pays cash for everything. I'm really looking forward to when your book tour gets to Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, sorry, where are the people gone? Uh, do you want to come down? Let's go right down the front. Lady in, in turquoise. And then... Sorry, to look do you want to get, see what I was wearing. Lady in, white, in, in a white jumper in the middle as well. Please. Um, 
this this is a, a, a slight shift, but um, something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. And the National Health Service in this country is in a crisis. And I've had some medical problems, and so I've been comparing British doctors and American doctors and the way they think and the way they approach things and the, the, that American patients tend to be more aware, more encouraged to be aware, uh, more self, we're just more self-determined in medicine as well, and equal partners in medical care. And my, my theory is that the average age of a first-year medical student in the UK is 18, 19. The average age of a first-year medical student in the States is 23. We're required to have a four-year undergraduate degree in which we are a, med, a pre-med student is forced to take literature mm-hmm. and political science and you know other history and other other courses outside pre-med stuff. And I'd like to hear you talk about this because I think part of the problem with the NHS is this rigid sort of thinking in the doctors and, and this whole control that things aren't as fluid, perhaps, between doctors and patients and all the rest. Yeah. Well, first of all, you're completely right about the, the, the difference uh, in the training. And, you know, you can see uh, the benefits of it. So I have in the book a wonderful example. Uh, a Yale School of Medicine, a, a, a professor um, of medicine, found that he just couldn't figure out why his students were not in their diagnostics, they were not observing things that they should observe. There was something they were missing. They were not just, they were not observant enough. So he took them to the Yale Art Gallery and he had them take a course. Uh, you know, it was kind of a structured environment where the director of the gallery and, a, and an art historian made them just study paintings. The uh, uptick in diagnosis was something like 20% at the end of that, and has now been adopted in 20 different programs around the, uh, around the country. So it's exactly the kind of thing you're talking about, where I think that there is a, there is a value which is difficult to figure out and quantify, but is real. Uh, you know, on the broader issue of... Uh, Healthcare. I think you you put it exactly right. It's very refreshing in a way for an American um, living in America to hear that because you know we generally think our healthcare system is the worst in the advanced industrial world, which is probably basically true um, <laughs> in the sense that it's the most costly, most inefficient, most chaotic. But the the one advantage it does have is that the patient does understand that ultimately he is the consumer or she is the consumer, and that, that he or she have to educate themselves about it. The very fact that it, you, you, know, you have to navigate through all this does make you more aware. Ultimately, this is your life and your health, and you have some autonomy and, and control over it. Um, we haven't done well on a lot of the other stuff, but that piece of it is actually going to grow in importance because I think you're going to be in a, in a situation with the technologies of the future where lots of stuff is going to be personalized and customized to your genes, to your preconditions. And so figuring out exactly where you sit on all, in all this becomes really important. I, on my show last week, I had this fascinating woman, Elizabeth Holmes, who is a Stanford scientist who started this company. She's the youngest self-made billionaire in the world. And what it does is it has revolutionized blood testing. And rather than having to draw four syringes of blood to, to run your tests, she can do it with one drop. 
Now, the reason one drop is very important is her point is we should all be getting blood tests every month because your blood can tell you stuff that's going on in your system much earlier than your symptoms do. So, you know, and and, and I don't know what it's like in the NHS, but in the United States, a doctor cannot order a blood test and get insurance to pay for it unless you're symptomatic. So by definition, you're sort of too late by the time the blood test is being done. If you could have one drop of blood, easy, cheap, you know, and she's trying to get the system right also where you can go to, you know, almost like going to a boots and, get, and getting it done, then you'd be doing it all the time. And you would be aware of your condition and you could notice, you know, slight variations and you can make adjustments. I think that's a perfect example of this kind of patient-centered approach that's probably going to be some of the medicine of the future. Fascinating. Please. Um, Mr. Zakaria, thank you very much for your passionate defense of a, a liberal education, which I wholeheartedly agree. I just want to ask for your comments on um, on something I'm curious about. So you made a point about how a lot of um, the famous innovations um, in our world today come from Ameri- emanate from America, whereas um, we can't really say the same, say, for like Asia. However, I think my um, question is that, uh, my concern is that many countries in Asia are still in the developing stage whereby training people with these sort of engineering scientific skills will be essential to building these economies. And that's also important because having a sound economy creates um, a, um, an environment that's conducive for people's ideas to run freely. And also, I think for some countries, just as a matter of practicality, because of resource constraints, um, not everyone gets to have a liberal education. So just as the other lady before me pointed out, in America, you get to study liberal arts for four years before going on to do your medical studies or your legal studies. Whereas in, say, a a country like Singapore, there would just not be enough, um, it would just not be efficient at all for someone to train seven or eight years before you become a lawyer or doctor because because the country has a mass shortage of, of people in both professions. So in such a situation, what do you think can be done to strike a balance? Yeah. Well, I think you, 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 your, um, your question um, and your concern uh, makes sense, which is that for a country like China, uh, obviously the first order of business is to provide the kind of jobs that manufacturing requires, which is a lot of technical training, um, but that will allow it to develop in, in terms of its, uh, its, the, the wealth of the society and perhaps provide a smaller number of people with the opportunity to do this broader education. Uh, and that probably is inevitable. The only um, thing I would disagree with you is Singapore can afford to uh, switch. Singapore is now richer than Britain on a per capita basis. And I think that uh, Singapore is, by the way, as a result. I was involved a little bit in a new Yale campus that is being set up in Singapore uh, to, to provide precisely this kind of education because the Singaporeans, being very smart about all, all things, were, have noticed this trend, which is you know, they have all these, science, all these technically trained people, but they don't have a lot of innovation. And why is that? And one of the things they've realized is they need to broaden their educational systems. Um, I think that it is still unclear, though, whether or not all, uh, people will be able to do that. Jack Ma gave a recent speech, the founder of Alibaba, the largest Chinese tech company, in which he said, we need to make our educational systems more fun. 
that uh, you know anyone who's been educated in Asia knows what that means. I mean, Asian education is a drag. It is just this, you know, grim grind through the material with a you know a couple of big exams at the end of three or four years. No, basically, nobody does any work until you know the three months before those exams, and then they kill themselves during you know before those exams. Go just like jumping through a you know the high set of obstacles, and you promptly forget everything the day after the you take the exams. It's not a very good system, right? Because you're not actually learning anything. You're not. So what he's saying is, is there a way to make people get passionately engaged with the material earlier, feel like it's fun, you know, maybe have sports as part of the educational system as they do in the United States, which is sort of, it was interesting to hear that from a, from Jack Ma, because you realize that he's obviously sensing some something missing in the people he's trying to hire and the people he's trying to work with. Excellent. We're sort of getting towards the end of it, so I'm just going to take two more, and I shall go right down the front here to this gentleman, and should we go for a trot down the back? How about the lady in the orange halfway up? I, be I begin quick. to wonder whether there is a link between liberal education and liberalism itself. You were talking at the beginning about the, 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 what you perceive to be the collapse of liberalism. I'm one of those who believes that liberalism was around when man was created, and it'll be around when man ends. Uh, it is a frame of mind. Uh, a, a, an altruistic frame of mind. Uh, what I wanted to say was I'm, I'm linking this to the notion of liberal education. Uh, I personally believe, and I speak as not only a, a, a former a university lecturer in international economics, but also a school governor for 30 years, a secondary school. And I, a lot of the subjects that the kids are learning are what I would say are best learned later on in university. Uh, I, and as a university teacher, you always regretted when they'd done something like this prior to coming to you. Uh, and I think that my view is that it makes kids specialising in these sorts of subjects, these, per, these uh, vocation uh, uh, intended subjects, it makes them uh, egocentric in motivation. And I think I, that, that's my feeling about it. And I think our society is suffering as a result of this. Okay. I can't you give, give, I can't give rude, you a lot of evidence running out of time. Do you want to, to, to bring in a question? Just this is what I'm beginning to think. Okay. I'd be, like, I'd be interested in your views on this. Excellent. Should we take, we let's the take the other question as well, and then we can wrap them up at the end. Go ahead at the back. Wake up. Hi. Uh, so I'm just listening to this. Uh, I happen to be a physician, and I did go through the North American system, and I, I actually don't think we go through this process. I think that notion of a liberal education is sort of false because people are doing mostly sciences in their undergraduates. They're not focused on art history and philosophy. They're focused on organic chemistry and biochemistry, and it doesn't make them a better doctor. It just makes them older and more tired. Um, and I can attest to it personally. Um, but I wanted to know your view on even even just this notion of doing the undergrad and then the postgrad in a specialization or you know studying philosophy. Isn't that a luxury of of a certain socioeconomic class and a certain social structure. I mean, if you 
live in London and are studying, you have much more luxury in terms of the community. I mean, walk around LSC, it's all developed. You, everything is here. You're among the, some of the wealthiest people in the world, some of the most highest educated. And I think we're isolating ourselves in a bubble in a way to say that this is, this is an opportunity that really makes sense for most of the world. Most of the world does not have post-secondary education. Most of the world does not have the opportunity to feed themselves. So like, how are we really looking at this issue? Um, sure. Look, you, you're you're raising an important issue, but the book, you know, my book can't deal with everything. Um, <laughs> alleviating poverty in the third world is obviously very important, um, but I'm not. You know, I, I, this is this is really about the way in which more advanced societies should think about education. But I would argue with some lessons. Uh, for developing societies as well. Uh, keep in mind that the cost piece of this, which, which you emphasize, is a very recent phenomenon, and uh, the idea of a liberal education is a very old one. So that I'm not now taking you back to Pericles, but if you just go back to the 1950s, um, education, the same kind of education I'm describing, was essentially free everywhere in the Western world. You could go and get a PhD at uh, the University of California at Berkeley in physics or political science, both of which it had, you know, in the top departments that were ranked between the, uh, among the top three in the world. And you were paying, I believe I saw the number, 1960, a Berkeley education was something like $300 a year. Okay, so this was this was widely available and was widely used by people coming into the middle class out of working class families. Lots of people who had never been, parents had never been to college before, uh, and that was very much part of the idea of bringing people in, not just into the middle into the middle class in economic terms, but bringing them in politically as well, becoming more aware as citizens of, of these societies of what it what it took. I think that is one of the great challenges going forward. It has become a more privileged product, and I and I regret that. And I think that you know it's in, it's unconscionable that costs have gone up the way they have. There are some good reasons and some bad ones. But again, I come back to what my hope is that this online revolution will really allow people to access it at every stage in their lives. Uh, if you look at the number of people taking these online courses, it's really staggering. Um, and, it's, and it's mostly, uh, you know, it's heartwarming uh, the degree to which it really is being done uh, without that vocational bias that you were just talking about. Uh, about half the courses that people are taking at edX and Coursera, which are the two main, um, main platforms, are clearly not trade-based. You know, they are art history and philosophy and, and things like that. Uh, and I think this is feeding one of the oldest human urges that we have, which is to know, to understand. Uh, and in doing that, we are, I believe, uh, feeding ourselves. I, I suspect that you are a better doctor than, uh, than, you, than you realize, because somewhere in the background there, there is this, uh, this broader and, the, and this deeper education. But it's also true that I think you'd be a better human being, uh, which is not an you know, insignificant point. You're going to work 
for 40 years and also in multiple jobs in multiple industries, you're going to live for a lot longer than that. I will tell you, some of the most unhappy people I know are successful executives who are now 75, have been retired for 10 years, and haven't an interest in the world. They don't know what to do with their lives because there's only so much golf you can play. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, you know, so one of the things you're doing is you're building the tools that allow you to live a rich, engaged life as, as a worker, as a producer, as a, you know, a saver, but also as a, a husband, a wife, a father, a friend, and ultimately as a human being, because you know, you're, going to, you're going to spend some significant portion of your life not working as well. And you want to make that as enjoyable and enriching as, as you humanly can. Okay. Well, listen, Fareed, you've, you've, you've made me feel a lot more comfortable about the fact that I'm spending a fortune on my son's education. <laughs> <laughs> one who's, who's done ancient history and the other one who's doing comparative literature. So you make me feel better about that. The, the, the book is an absolutely exquisite book. It's a wonderfully argued, passionate uh, defense of an ideal. It's also a, a very beautiful personal read as well, so I, I really recommend it a lot. Fareed is going to go outside and we'll be signing copies if you'd like to join him there. But please show your appreciation now. Thank you. Thank you.